0: AUTHOR'S NOTE AND CHAPTER 1 OF A CHRONICLE OF WOLF This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A CHRONICLE OF WOLF by William Wood. AUTHOR'S NOTE Any life of Wolfe can be artificially simplified by treating his purely military work as something complete in itself, and not as part of a greater whole. But since such treatment gives a totally false idea of his achievement, this little sketch, drawn straight from original sources, tries to show him, as he really was, a co-worker with the British fleet, in a war based entirely on naval strategy, and inseparably connected with international affairs of worldwide significance. The only simplification attempted here is that of arrangement and expression. W. W. Quebec. April. Nineteen fourteen. Chapter one: The Boy, seventeen twenty-seven to seventeen forty-one. Wolfe was a soldier born. Many of his ancestors had stood ready to fight for king and country at a moment's notice. His father fought under the Great Duke of Marlborough in the war against France at the beginning of the eighteenth century. His grandfather, his great grandfather, his only uncle, and his brother were soldiers too nor has the martial spirit deserted the descendants of the wolves. in the generation now alive. They are soldiers still. The present head of the family, who represented it at the celebration of the tercentenary of the founding of Quebec, fought in Egypt for Queen Victoria, and the member of it who represented Wolfe on that occasion, in the pageant of the Quebec campaign, is an officer in the Canadian army under George V the wolves are of an old and honourable line many hundreds of years ago their forefathers lived in england and later on in wales later still in the fifteenth century before america was discovered they were living in ireland wolf's father however was born in england and as there is no evidence that any of his ancestors in ireland had married other than english protestants and as wolf's mother was also english we may say that the victor of Quebec was a pure-bred Englishman. Among his Anglo-Irish kinsmen were the goldsmiths and the Seymours. Oliver Goldsmith himself was always very proud of being a cousin of the man who took Quebec. Wolfe's mother, to whom he owed a great deal of his genius, was a descendant of two good families in Yorkshire. She was eighteen years younger than his father, and was very tall and handsome. Wolfe thought There was no one like her. When he was a colonel and had been through the wars and at court, he still believed she was a match for all the beauties. He was not lucky enough to take after her in looks, except in her one weak feature, a cutaway chin. His body, indeed, seems to have been made up of the bad points of both parents. He had his rheumatism from his father, but his spirit was made up of all their good points and no braver ever lived in any healthy body than in his own sickly, lanky six-foot-three. Wolfe's parents went to live at Westerham, in Kent, shortly after they were married, and there, on January second, 1727, in the vicarage where Mrs. Wolfe was staying while their husband was away on duty with his regiment, the Vicar of Quebec was born. Two other houses in the little country town of Westerham are full of memories of Wolfe. One of these was his father's, a house more than two hundred years old when he was born. It was built in the reign of Henry the Seventh, and the loyal subject who built it had the king's coat of arms carved over the big stone fireplace. Here Wolfe and his younger brother Edward used to sit in the winter evenings with their mother, while their veteran father told them the story of his long campaigns. So curiously enough, it appears that Wolfe, The soldier who won Canada for England in 1759 sat under the arms of the king, in whose service the sailor-cabot hoisted the flag of England over Canadian soil in 1497. This house had been called Quebec House ever since the victory in 1759. The other house is Squires Court, belonging then and now to the Ward family, the Wolfe's closest friends. Wolfe and George Ward were chums from the first day they met. Both wished to go into the army, and both, of course, played soldiers, like other virile boys. Ward lived to be an old man and actually did become a famous cavalry leader. Perhaps, when he charged a real enemy, sword in hand, at the head of the thundering squadrons, it may have flashed through his mind how he and Wolfe had waved their whips and cheered like mad when they galloped their ponies down the common with nothing but their barking dogs behind them. Wolfe's parents presently moved to Greenwich, where he was sent to school at Swindon's. Here he worked quietly enough till just before he entered on his teens. Then the long pent rage of England suddenly burst in war with Spain. The people went wild when the British fleet took Portobello, a spanish port in central america the news was cried through the streets all night the noise of battle seemed to be sounding all round Swindon's school where most of the boys belonged to naval and military families ships were fitting out in english harbours soldiers were marching into every english camp crowds were singing and cheering first one boy's father and then another's was under orders for the front among them was Wolfe's father who was made an adjutant general to the forces assembling in the Isle of Wight. What were history and geography and mathematicians now, when a whole nation was afoot to fight? And who would not fight the Spaniards when they cut off British sailors' ears? That was an old tale by this time, but the flame of anger threw it into lurid relief once more. Wolfe was determined to go and fight. Nothing could stop him. There was no commission for him as an officer— Never mind, he would go as a volunteer, and win his commission in the field. So one hot day in July, 1740, the lanky, red-haired boy of thirteen and a half took his seat on the portsmouth coach beside his father, the veteran soldier of fifty-five. His mother was a woman of much too fine a spirit to grudge anything for the service of her country but she could not help being exceptionally anxious about the dangers of disease for a sickly boy in a far-off land of pestilence and fever she had written to him the very day he left but he full of the stir and excitement of a big camp had carried the letter in his pocket for two or three days before answering it then he wrote her the first of many letters from different seats of war the last one of all being written just before he won the victory that made him famous round the world. Newport, Isle of Wight, August sixth, 1740 I received my dearest mamma's letter on Monday last, but could not answer it then. By reason I was at camp to see the regiments off to go on board, and was too late for the post. But am very sorry, dear mamma, that you doubt my love which I am sure is as sincere as ever any son's was to his mother. Papa and I are just going on board, but I believe shall not sail this fortnight, in which time, if I can get ashore at Portsmouth, or any other town, I will certainly write to you, and when we are gone, by every ship we meet, because I know it is my duty. Besides, if it is not, I would do it out of love, with pleasure. I am sorry to hear that your head is so bad, which I fear is caused by your being so melancholy, but pray, dear mamma, if you love me, don't give yourself up to fears for us. I hope, if it pleases God, we shall soon see one another, which will be the happiest day that I ever shall see. I will, as sure as I live, if it is possible for me, let you know everything that has happened, by every ship. Therefore pray, dearest mamma, don't doubt about it. I am in a very good state of health, and am likely to continue so. Pray, my love, to my brother." Pray my service to Mr. Stretton and his family to Mr. and Mrs. Weston, and to George Ward when you see him and pray believe me to be my dearest mamma, your most dutiful, loving, and affectionate son, J. Wolfe, to Mrs. Wolfe at her house in Greenwich, Kent. Wolfe's very good state of health was not likely to continue so either in camp or on board ship. A long peace had made the country indifferent to the welfare of the army and navy. Now men were suddenly being massed together in camps and fleets, as if on purpose to breed disease. Sanitation on a large scale, never having been practised in peace, could not be improved in this hurried, though disastrously slow, preparation for a war. The ship in which Wolfe was to sail had been lying idle for years, and her pestilential bilge-water soon began to make the sailors and soldiers sicken and die. Most fortunately, Wolfe was among the first to take ill, and so he was sent home in time to save him from the fevers of Spanish America. Wolfe was happy to see his mother again, to have his pony to ride and his dogs to play with. But though he tried his best to stick to his lessons, his heart was wild for the war. He and George Ward used to go every day during the Christmas holidays behind the pigeon-house at Squirey's Court, and practised with their swords and pistols. One day they stopped when they heard the post horn blowing at the gate, and both of them became very much excited when George's father came out himself with a big official envelope marked On His Majesty's Service, and addressed to James Wolfe, Esquire. Inside was a commission as second lieutenant in the Marines, signed by George II, and dated at St. James's Palace. November third, 1741. Eighteen years later, when the fame of the conquest of Canada was the talk of the kingdom, the wards had a stone monument built to mark the spot where Wolfe was standing when the squire handed him his first commission. And there it is to-day, and on it are the verses ending. This spot, so sacred, will for claim a proud alliance with its hero's name. Wolfe was at last an officer— But the marines were not the corps for him. Their service companies were five thousand miles away, while war with France was breaking out much nearer home. So what was his delight at receiving another commission, on March twenty-fifth, 1742, as an ensign in the 12th Regiment of Foot? He was now fifteen, an officer, a soldier, born and bred, eager to serve his country, and just appointed to a regiment, ordered to the front." within a month an army such as no one had seen since the days of marlborough had been assembled at blackheath infantry cavalry artillery and engineers they were all there when king george the second the prince of wales and the duke of cumberland came down to review them little did anybody think that the tall eager ensign carrying the colours of the twelfth past his majesty was the man who was to play the foremost part in winning canada for the british crown End of chapter one.